Medieval Miscellany with Andrew Reeves, a place where I discuss things about the Middle Ages that I find interesting. This will be the last episode of the season, and we'll pick up again in September after our August break. And to finish the season, we'll pick up with part two of the discussion of medieval cosmology. We'll be talking about astrology and natural magic. And what, you may ask, is natural magic? Well, We're going to talk a lot about various forms of magic in future episodes, but for the most part, what you need to know is that medieval churchmen held that magic was forbidden. After all, churchmen going back to St. Augustine of Hippo at the end of the 4th century had argued that magic is forbidden by the Christian religion, since it could only be done with the aid of demons. Seems pretty open and shut, right? Well, not exactly because there might actually have been an exception. It was, of course, illicit to try and manipulate the natural world with the aid of demons. But might it be possible to manipulate the natural world through the properties of things? This brings us to natural magic. William of Auvergne, the 13th century philosopher, schoolmaster, and bishop of Paris, whom you may remember from last episode, argued that there was a form of magic that worked through the hidden properties of things. And do you know what Latin for hidden is? It's occultus. So when I end up referring to something's occult properties, I mean what natural philosophers called their hidden properties. This working of effects that appear marvelous or outside of nature, but worked according to a thing's hidden properties, were natural magic. And later medieval thinkers argued that this natural magic might be different from the illicit kind. So what are some examples of hidden properties of things? Well, that of course brings us to the age-old question. Magnets. How do they work? Because of course, a magnet can act on things. It can make a needle point north. It can attract metals and the like. It does so at a distance. But the way that it does so can't be measured. It's exercising an occult property. Then there's gemstones. Medieval people believed that gemstones had certain properties. William of Auvergne's example of occult properties of things was that the sapphire could both heal a person and calm them. Where exactly do these occult properties of things come from? Well, The way that Greek, Roman, Muslim, and European philosophers understood the world is that things exist as a combination of form and matter. Take, for example, a potato. Form is what makes it a potato, rather than a ruby, or a diamond, or a shoe. Matter is what makes each potato a particular individual potato, this potato as opposed to that potato. Without form, prime matter has no properties at all. Now then, we've got the union of form and matter that makes things what they are. The union of form and matter gives us a substance. In this case, the substance of a potato. It's potatoness. 
But the properties of one particular potato, its weight, its shade of brown, its moisture, those don't exist apart from the potato. So they're what they call accidents. The accidents are what we perceive with our senses. The substantial form makes it a member of the species potato, but the accidental form can change and it still remains a potato. Now then, here's the trick to natural magic. We can perceive the accidental form, but the substantial form is hidden from the senses. So if you draw on a thing's occult properties, but are not invoking fallen angels, magic could be licit. But you can't have anything that communicates information. That's what turns something from okay to a no-no. An amulet with symbols? That's forbidden. But what if, say, I carve a ruby in the likeness of the constellation Leo? Well, now we're going to talk about how that medieval cosmology we discussed last episode ties in with astrology and natural magic. Medieval people believed in a cosmos with Earth at the center, the planets and the sun orbiting it, and then, at the outer part of the cosmos, the fixed stars. These fixed stars were divided into the twelve constellations of the zodiac, which moved in a circle throughout the heavens over the course of the year. At any given time, six would be visible, and six below the horizon. Now then, Astrologers, and indeed most learned philosophers, believed that the heavens acted on the earth. In many ways we can see this. The sun gives light and heat at a distance. The tides correlate with the motions of the moon across the sky. And if you don't have a working theory of gravity, that's a hidden property causing action at a distance. So do you remember how last episode I noted the idea proposed by some philosophers that God made causality function by way of the heavens? Well, if that's how God acts on the world, then of course the heavens will act on people and will influence people in terms of their character. Likewise, philosophers going all the way back to Aristotle had held that everything that's changeable here below the moon's orbit is worked upon by the heavenly bodies. This includes the growth of plants, but also how minerals form in the earth. Philosophers, seeing the sublunary world as a microcosm, a miniature world, saw that there were correspondences between heavenly bodies and the minerals. So the sun related to gold, the moon to silver, mercury to, well, mercury, and so on. People too would be influenced by the movement of the heavens. When a baby was born, it was soft and malleable, and so subject to influence by the heavens. Astrologers took great care to know which planets were in ascendant when a child was born, and also which planets aligned with which signs of the zodiac. When we say ascendant, we mean when a planet was rising on the horizon. So someone like Chaucer's wife of Bath, born when Venus was ascendant, would have a sexually voracious personality. Now, most all churchmen argued that people still had the free will to choose good and evil, and to accept or reject God's grace. But they also believed often that you could have a sense of someone's personality based on the heavenly bodies influencing their birth. But it wasn't just birth. You'd want to make sure that the heavens were auspicious for certain activities. So if you were a military commander leading troops into battle, 
you would avoid choosing battle when Mars was on the descendant. We can see they used astrology for planning lots of activities. In fact, the scholar Richard Kiekhafer has shown that you can actually chart the dates of the weddings of medieval monarchs and nobles and see that they were consulting astrological charts on the most auspicious time to conduct these weddings. But here's the question. Could you do more with the working of the stars on the world than simply use it predictively? Might you be able to actively affect things here on Earth by means of the stars? Well, now we're getting into astral magic. What if you were to take the images of the constellations or planets and use those images to concentrate and manipulate the forces by which the heavens carry out God's creation? Well, some philosophers, like St. Thomas Aquinas, argued that this was illicit. Others, though, were less certain that this was the case. Albert the Great, whom you may remember from the episode on dreams, was fairly open to the notion of natural magic being a legitimate operation of natural philosophy. He believed that the astrological influences on a person affected the shape of their body, and this physiognomy, that is, this science of the shape of a person, could tell you about someone's character. Where does the notion of physiognomy come down to us today? Well, in palm reading. Albert also held that one could use signs to manipulate the power of heavenly bodies and that this could be licit. So how might one work with astral magic? Well, let's have a look at the spellbook known as the Picatrix, translated from Arabic into Latin in Spain in the 1200s. Suppose you want to depopulate a place. Well, Saturn's corresponding earthly element is lead. So you would write certain signs on a lead tablet, hide it in the area you want to depopulate, and this would call down the power of Saturn, which is traditionally associated with things like pestilence. Other spells of the Picatrix include the use of things with marvelous properties. You could use them to make potions, but sometimes you would burn one of these plants, like rhubarb or mandrake, in a way to get their hidden powers to be released and help with the spell you are casting. Now, I wanted to emphasize that even with the increasing overlap between magic and science in the 13th century faculty of arts, straight-up magic could still get you into a whole lot of trouble. Cecco d'Ascoli, for example, was a professor of astrology in Bologna. He wrote a voluminous collection of astrological medical, and natural philosophical works. These works brought him under the suspicion of practicing magic, and as a result, both Chaco and his writings were burned in 1327. He was burned as a relapsed heretic. And yet, in another 150 years the intellectual climate would change drastically enough that magic would attain a respectability. Natural magic would be regarded as a science by Renaissance scholars. Remember, the Renaissance is the period from the late 1300s to the early 1600s, more or less. The key figure for the respectability of magic is Marsilio Ficino, 
a scholar of ancient literature in Renaissance Florence. One part of the ideal of the Renaissance was going to the original writings of the Greeks and Romans and stripping away centuries worth of commentary. Sometimes this meant finding manuscripts that had lain unread in libraries for centuries. For Ficino, this meant going back to the original works of Plato, and he was a keen translator of these works from Greek into Latin. The works of Plato weren't the only recently re recovered ancient works that he brought to light. In 1471, he completed his translation of the so-called Hermetic Corpus from Greek into Latin. The Hermetic Corpus was a body of writings that discussed the theory and practice of magic. According to legends of the ancient Greeks and medieval Muslims, the Egyptian god Thoth and the Greek god Hermes were the same figure. And the stories of the god who had given humanity writing, civilization, and knowledge of the world were actually legends that had grown up around a person called Hermes Trismegistos, that is, Hermes the Thrice Great. Over the Hellenistic period, that is, the 200s and 100s BC, writers outlining theories and practices of magic, and its related discipline of alchemy, would often write under the name of Hermes so as to gain greater authority for their own writing. Ancient and medieval writers who wanted to write something of their own but have more people read it and respect it would claim the name of someone famous. And this was a fairly common practice. You see pseudonyms all over the place. So by the late 1300s, you had a great many of these texts kicking around in the Byzantine Empire, dating from anywhere between the 3rd century BC to the 14th century. Hermetic texts came in two flavors. You had the practical texts, which covered things like spells, alchemy, botany, medicine, and the like. But you also had theoretical hermetic texts. These theoretical texts were based strongly on Neoplatonism, on the idea of the soul's relationship with God. The idea was that you would purify the soul so that it could rise to the divine level. These texts would discuss how the world worked, about how the human being was a microcosm, that is, a miniature reflection of the world in general. Thing is, when Ficino translated these theoretical texts, it gave magic and hermetic magic a big shot in the arm. Why? Well, he gave these clearly fanciful forgeries the same authority as Plato, one of the greatest of philosophers. If Ficino was translating it, you knew it was genuine ancient philosophy. It wasn't. Based on his excitement with having discovered the hermetic corpus, in 1489 he published De Vita Celitus Comparanda, which is Latin for On Making Life Agree with the Heavens. In this work, he talked about the theory and practice, but mainly the theory of hermetic magic. He traced the heritage of magic, attributing aspects of the magical tradition to the Greek philosophers such as Plotinus, Democritus, and Pythagoras. Indeed, said Ficino, magic went back to the Persian prophet Zoroaster and to Hermes himself. Ficino believed that Hermes had lived around the time of Moses, and that 
Hermes Trismegistos had authored a tradition of magic that had been passed down in secret for close to 2,000 years. One of the next major works on magic would be that of Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa von Nettesheim, a German philosopher and physician who, sometime around 1510, wrote On Occult Philosophy, which became one of the definitive magic texts of the first part of the 16th century. Agrippa's magic was based on a Platonizing outlook. His view of the universe was that everything that exists is contained in the mind of God and is then mediated to the earth through a spiritual energy, first through the intelligences who occupy the heavenly bodies and then down to earthly bodies. In Agrippa's writing, you can basically follow those downward channels of spiritual energy back up by finding sympathies between lower things and their heavenly counterparts, as above, so below. So, for example, certain minerals on Earth have astrological counterparts, like gold and the sun. You could use these materials, or, say, make images to represent certain astrological combinations, and establish what they called sympathy. This scheme of Agrippa's gets a magic that is divided into three parts, natural, mathematical, and ritual. In natural magic, you manipulate the qualities of earthly things so that they match certain heavenly qualities. In mathematical magic, you manipulate quantities and symbols of earthly things to change their celestial counterparts. And in ritual magic, you seek to manipulate angelic minds. Note that he also wrote that you need to be careful in trying to manipulate angels, lest you find yourself working instead with demons, and that would be bad. In Agrippa's thought, the occult qualities of things are themselves hidden, unlike the visible qualities, but you can nevertheless see the effects of these hidden qualities. Because, you see, the thing about Agrippa's magic is that although it's theoretical, it also, like most Renaissance magic, is based on a strong, empirical component. It's not just a learned system, but also depends on experimental results. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, last I checked, there doesn't seem to be any physical evidence for the effectiveness of wizardry. But remember, what are hidden properties I've talked about? Things like magnets, or the shock delivered by an electric eel, both of which clearly have an observable result that works through unseen means. And talk of the elements and the heavens brings us at last to the science of transmutation. That's right, I'll close off talking about alchemy. Alchemy is the science of changing one thing into another. Indeed, it is the origin of our own science of chemistry. After all, Listen to the word alchemical. What word does that sound like? That's right, chemical. So chemistry had its origins in natural magic. Alchemy is an art whose origins are obscure. But some of the oldest writings on its techniques come from Egypt during the rule of the Ptolemies, those Greek-speaking pharaohs who were Egypt's last dynasty before it was conquered by Rome. The earlier alchemical writings were often practical. One of the oldest, 
a text called Natural and Mystical Things, had recipes for dyes and also how to make artificial gold and silver. But eventually, alchemists became obsessed with being able to actually transmute metals into real gold and real silver, and this would be an overriding feature of alchemy for the rest of its history. If you're interested, we now know that you can in fact turn lead into gold. You need a cyclotron. But the energy costs are actually greater than the difference in the price of lead and gold. Sorry. The guy who's important for our purposes is Zosimus of Panopolis, writing around 300 BC. He wrote extensively on the correspondence of substances with their astrological counterparts and often used mystical language. He would speak of healing metal by turning it into gold and of purifying the elements in the same way that one purifies the soul. Zosimus spoke of a substance that he called the powder, which in Greek is xerion. The powder could instantly transmute a metal into gold and turn a sick person into a healthy person. Finding this substance would be the great quest of subsequent alchemists. We move forward now into the years after Muslim conquests of the Middle East and North Africa in the 600s. As I've mentioned previously, Muslim thinkers read widely among the philosophical works of the Greeks, which served as the foundation for their own philosophical writing. And they were very keen on alchemy. Indeed, they gave alchemy its name. Alchemia is Arabic for the Egyptian art. Since, like most medieval and ancient peoples, the Arabs believed that ancient Egypt had been the source of most human knowledge. When Arab philosophers wrote of what Zosimus had called the powder, they just took the Greek word and wrote it in Arabic. Xerion became al-ixir, from which our own word elixir comes. And these Arabic writers called the elixir a stone but they spoke of it in cryptic language, as a stone that was not a stone, as something that could cure disease and transmute metals. We know this as the sought-after philosopher's stone, which, if discovered, would grant the alchemist power over both matter and medicine. Arabic alchemists, the most famous of whom was Jabir, took their work in alchemy and learned much in the way of mineralogical medicine and of the distillation of acids, particularly by the use of ammonium chloride. By the 11 and 1200s, Arabic works of alchemy had been translated into Latin, and Western Europeans were doing their own writing and experimenting with alchemy. By the 1500s, with the rediscovery of the Hermetic writings, Western European thinkers integrated alchemy into an astrology-based system of natural magic. Alchemy was a science. But since, of course, in today's university, our science faculty don't wear wizards' robes, it's pretty clear that magic declined. Why? Well, in the first place, textual scholarship progressed and scholars got even better at textual analysis. They were able to figure out how writing styles, word usage, and the like changed over time. So the Renaissance writer Isaac Casabon showed that the language of the Hermetic texts couldn't possibly have come from the time of Moses, or even from the time of the earlier Greek philosophers. So the notion of an ancient Hermetic tradition was gradually shown to be a tissue of forgeries. In the same way, people 
stopped thinking of metaphysics in terms of quality. What do I mean by that? Well, thinkers gradually quit ascribing a separate existence to the quality that was inherent in a thing. So rather than ask what qualities a magnet has to make it work, or what qualities there are that bring about an object's inclining to the earth, people would simply make observations. They would measure a magnet's effects without trying to figure out any qualities that made it work. When they were able to move away from looking for inherent qualities, they wound up without any underlying theories and instead simply began gathering data. We see this in Galileo, whom I mentioned last week. Galileo's physics simply involved measuring motion, speed, and the like. His astronomy was measuring the movement of celestial bodies, rather than trying to figure out what made them move. It was only after that sort of work laid the foundations that another century later, Sir Isaac Newton would be able to figure out a new theory. So in the end, what helped bring science out of magic was a gradual rejection of theory and a move to pure observation. That wraps up this two-part episode and concludes the first season of this podcast. After our August break, we'll pick back up again in September. If you'd like to discuss this episode, there's a link to our Discord in the description. If you'd like to support this work of mine that I'm doing in addition to my normal duties as a professor, please go over to the Patreon link and subscribe. I'm Andrew Reeves, and this is The Reeves Tale. Thanks for listening.